The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. You trudged through the snow, the rain, and it's Super Bowl Sunday, but you made it here this morning. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I'm so glad uh, that you're here this morning. I'm really excited to be with you. But first, I want to just say thank you to Pastor Chris. It's always a privilege to be able to speak, to stand in somebody else's, uh, behind somebody else's podium and, and give the message. So thank you, Pastor Chris. Thank you for everything we, you do. Go ahead and give him a hand clap. He's done a great job. So I don't know about you, but I love to study history. I absolutely love it. Becca says that I am a history nerd. But I specifically like American history, but I like studying all different types of it. And the reason is, is when I look at history, what I see is I see God-ordained moments. I see him unfolding his plan. The cheesy way to say it is it's his story, right? When I look at history, I see God unfolding, advancing his kingdom right before our eyes. So this morning, before we jump into the text of scripture, I want to give you a little background on what we're going to be discussing. And I want to look at three different eras in history. So the first era that we have is the pre-modern era. This goes from the beginning of creation to about 1500 AD. And during this time, there was little advancement. There was nomadic people that just began to establish civilizations. And that was the big thing. There was, uh, we saw a boom in the supernatural religions came to be. This is the time period that Jesus walked the earth. And then around 1500 AD, it shifted to the modern era. And in the modern era, we see that that went from about 1500 AD to 1945 with the detonating of the atomic bomb. That's kind of what shifted that era. And during that time, we see the Darwin's theory of evolution. We see a shift from the supernatural to the natural. Focus on if I can see it, then I can believe it. That's what took place in the modern era. And then we shift to what we're living in right now is the postmodern era. And that started with the uh, detonating of the atomic bomb. And what we saw during the postmodern era and what we're seeing now is during the modern era, we were able to see that we could create great things. We could build incredible buildings. But with the detonating of the atomic bomb, we saw that we could also destroy things quickly. We also quit looking at what truth was defined to be, and we began to define truth for ourselves. No longer were we seeking out to see what reality was, but we said, I can create my own reality. We're living through that time period now. And what we see is we see a shift from people focusing on the communal group of believers to their individual lives. It's the American individualism that we're seeing. So this morning... That's kind of the essence, the shift from the study of theology, the theology, seeking out to see who Christ is and finding the definition of our life by finding out who Christ is to what we're seeing now is really an advancement of what, what I like to call meology, focusing on how Christ can just be a supplement to my life. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians, the first chapter, verse 15. Will you stand with me this morning? So in Colossians, the first chapter, verse 15, it starts by saying, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you anoint this message, that it's your words that go forth this morning. We give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So I believe that there are two major questions that have been asked throughout all of history. That there's two major questions that every human being has asked at some point in their life. Number one, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? And number two, what is my purpose here? What's the meaning of life? And this morning as we look at the difference between theology and meology, the question is, who do you look to to answer those questions? See, if you're a, a Christ follower, if Christ is on the throne of your life, you look to him to answer those questions. You look upward to get answers to those questions. But if you're looking inward and, you, and you're following like a meology thought process, you look to yourself to define these things. So as we dive into this this morning... I want us to focus on how we can recognize the differences between when I'm following what Christ wants me to do and my definition for my life. See, it's interesting to me that when Henry Ford established the Model T, nobody questioned him when he said the purpose of the Model T is this. But us, the, the creatures that have been created by Creator God, many times say, no, 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 the purpose for my life, God, is this. We turn to the creator and we say we have a better definition for what our purpose to be here is than he does. It's very interesting to me. The theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, any idea or philosophy that does not ultimately come back or point to Christ needs to be eliminated. It needs, it necessitates that it's eliminated. In Acts, the 17th chapter, verse 28, we're going to get back to the scripture, I promise. It's all set up. Hang in there with me. Acts, the 17th chapter, verse 28, Paul is speaking to the Greeks about a poem that was written to an unknown God. And he says that unknown God that you're talking about is actually Christ. And he says, for in him we live and move and have our being. That has to be the absolute truth for your life. That in him we live and move and have our being. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live a life that I'm constantly being an observer of what God's doing. I want to be an active participant in the advancing of the gospel. I want to be an active participant in God's fan, uh, plan unfolding. I don't want to just be a pew sitter, come in on Sunday morning for an hour or so, and then leave and the word never affect my life. So how do we know when we're shifting our perspective from looking to God for these things to looking to ourselves? Well, I have a short list that we're going to go through this morning, so hang in there with me. 
Number one, we use Scripture to validate our own beliefs. We have to be careful about this. Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verse 12 says this, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When I'm in my personal devotion time, and I'm seeking to make Christ the Lord of my life, I open the Word, and I say, show me where I'm wrong. But that's not always been the case. There's been times in my life where I want God to validate my own beliefs, where I open the Bible and say, please show me where I'm right. But that should not be the heart of a true believer. Somebody that's following Christ, that is making Christ the Lord of their life, that is focusing on allowing him to define our life. We turn to the Bible and we say, Father, show me where I've made mistakes. Convict me in areas that I'm wrong. Allow me to grow. We have to be careful that we don't turn to the Word and say, hey, show me where I'm right. Because when we do that, we're stripping the Word from some of its power in our life. We have to be careful about that, that we turn to it. This is how cults start, right? Somebody turns to the Bible and says, I have the ultimate authority when the Holy Spirit has the ultimate authority. Number two, God's gifts and ministry are used for self-promotion. We know we're slipping into a meology instead of a theology when we start seeking God's gifts or an office in the church or a position for self-promotion or self-gain. Colossians, the first chapter, tells us that he is the head of the church, that he is preeminent, and that he gives us those gifts and he gives us the offices of the church and ministry in order for edification of the body, to grow the body. It's unfortunate that in the American culture, we see these things being manipulated and used for self-promotion and self-gain. Number three, worship, when worship becomes focused on self rather than Savior. It's interesting, when Becca and I first moved to Richmond, we were visiting churches. We actually visited this church, and then we went to one other one, and we came back here and said, this is our home church. But, <laughs> but when we were visiting, the invitation to worship for another church we went to was, I, I just want you to focus on yourself right now. I really want you to realize, like, you've had a hard week. This is going to be a time for you to rejuvenate yourself. And I was like... Worship is not for you. Worship is for the glory of God. And when we shift our thinking from our theology to a meology, we begin to come to worship because it makes me feel good. And it's a great thing if worship makes you feel good. But ultimately, we are lifting high the name of Jesus. Romans, the 12th chapter, verse 1, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is not just an activity that takes place on Sunday morning before the message starts. Worship is when you go to work. Worship's when you're in school. Worship's when you're, when you're doing your chores at your house. Worship should be every aspect of your life. You do it as if you're doing it for the Father. Our life should so overflow with worship out of the gratefulness of our heart that Jesus gave his life on the cross for us 
So we should continue to overflow with that worship for him. We know that we're slipping out of our a true theology into a meology when our worship becomes focused on ourself rather than our Savior. Number four, when holiness becomes about you. First Peter, the first chapter, verse 16 says, you shall be holy for I am holy. Holiness is good, but our holiness should flow out of the goodness of God and not for a desire to be prideful around other people. You'll see this a lot. People will begin to grow in the faith, but then their pride gets in the way, and they start trying to show off their holiness. We'll start trying to show off our holiness. When you become somebody different in the church building than you are at home, holiness should flow out of understanding the goodness of God. And when we begin to focus on ourself for holiness, we start to slip. And I'll, this whole message is not to beat you up this morning. Please be with me. This message this morning is to motivate us to grow in our relationship with Jesus. 100%, this message is to show you areas and me areas in my life, because we're all guilty of this, areas in our life where we've begun to slip or, or straighten up and thank God for the grace of God that allows us to get back on the right path. I hope this morning that you're motivated by this message to grow in your relationship with Jesus, that to grow and get better. Each day, my goal is to look more like Jesus today than I did yesterday, that I should continue to grow into the image of Christ. So, I'm not trying to beat anybody up this morning. I promise. Love you guys. Number five, our freedom in Christ is used as an excuse to be selfish. Galatians, the fifth chapter, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The freedom that Christ provides should allow us to overflow to advance the kingdom. We should so abound in love for the freedom that he provided that it's unexplainable. We should show so much love, the love that was not able to be shown under the old covenant system, that under the new covenant we're able to show love for our neighbor in an unexplainable way. I'm gonna brag on my wife a little bit. She knew I was gonna use this on a sermon illustration. But this week she was talking to her friend that they've been friends for a long, long time. And they were discussing like little spats that they had had growing up and how they had affected each other. And Becca said to her friend, she said, I want you to know that no matter what, you could do anything and I would still love you. I love you so much. Like you, you could, she, she said this, you could literally spit in my face and I would still love you. Like, there's nothing you could do. And her friend said, I, I, I don't get that. Her friend is not a Christian. She said, I can't understand that. And Becca was like, well, you kind of can't until you know Christ. That type of love, the love that overflows, that's unexplainable, is not attainable until we know Christ. But when we allow the freedom that he provided to be used for selfish means, we know we've kind of got off track a little bit. Number six, I was guilty of this one a lot when I was little, is when our prayer life becomes only about what I need. 
We go to God and we say, hey, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. By the way, can you throw in this? Okay, I'll see you tomorrow. Right? But here's the thing. The Bible tells us that we are to ask for what we need. Right? The Bible tells us. I mean, Matthew um, or Luke, the 18th chapter, says that we should continue to, I'll say it exactly. So don't think that God will surely, uh, so don't you think that God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? So we're supposed to ask. So I've always had this question about my prayer life is like, how do I know when I'm asking too much or not saying thank you enough? Like, how do I know what's going on? And Pastor Chris talked about prayer a couple weeks ago, right? And it was incredible. But what happens is when I try to regulate my prayer life based off of rules, I know that I'm wrong. When I try to define how I'm supposed to pray, I know that I've begun to slip. Because Jesus calls us to a relationship with him more than any cold, dead religion. He calls us to be in a relationship with him. So when we are in our prayer time, we allow just it to flow naturally. And the first few times it's going to be a little bit awkward because any new relationship is. But we allow that to flow and we grow in our conversation with Christ. Number seven. When we use our obedience to manipulate God, we used to have spelling tests growing up every Friday in school. And if I hadn't studied enough leading up to the spelling test, I would begin to negotiate with God for an A. Right? I'll, do, I'll clean my room five days this week. Mom and dad won't even have to know. Right? We began to negotiate, but really what we're trying to do is manipulate him with our obedience. Our obedience should, should flow out of a gratefulness for what he's done for us, right? And we know that we're allowing our theology to slip into a meology when, when we begin to say, God, I'll do this if you'll do this. That's the old covenant system, if then, right? Jesus calls us to a relationship with this that is based upon grace. We don't deserve it, yet he gives it to us. So I know that I'm beginning to slip out of a true theology into a meology when I start saying, God, I will do this if you will do this. Number eight, when our failures lead us inward instead of upward. We all fall. We all make mistakes. We all slip up. But when we begin to look to ourselves for the answer for those mistakes, that's when we've begun to slip. When we make mistakes, it should ultimately lead us to the grace that Jesus provided on the cross. That we look back to the cross and say, thank you for his grace. And look upward to allow him to pick us up, to dust us off, and a Super Bowl Sunday, so to get us back in the game. Ben <laughs> said, come on. I like Ben up here. He talks me up a little bit. But when our failures lead us inward instead of upward... In Luke, the eighth chapter, we see that Jesus tells the disciples, we're going across the sea, right? We're going across. And then Jesus gets on the boat and proceeds to take a nap. And when he's taking a nap, a storm breaks out. And a storm breaks out, and the disciples begin to say, we're going to die. Wake him up. What's he doing sleeping? Can't he see we're about to die? Jesus wakes up, says, peace, be still. And then he rebukes the disciples for not having enough faith. In a storm or in chaos... 
who you truly believe in or what you truly believe in will flow out of you. My mentor always said that you're either going into a storm, you're in a storm, or you're coming out of a storm. I know that's, that's always good, good to know. It really encourages you on Sunday morning. But it's, it's the truth, right? There's always something that we're either going into, coming out of, or currently in. And when we're in those moments of storms and trials and tribulations, does it lead us closer to Christ or further away? We have to ask ourselves, why? Why? Number nine, when we think salvation is based on our performance. Ephesians, the second chapter, verse eight, says this. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you cannot take credit for this, for it is a gift of God. It is always his grace. But when we believe that we maintain our relationship with Christ by our doing, we've slipped into, out of a theology into a meology. We slipped, that we shifted the focus off of him onto us. When we begin to think our relationship is based on our performance, it's always been about his grace. It's always been that he shed his blood on the cross for us. That's why. Zach, will you play for me? We deserved death, yet Jesus took the punishment for us. Thank God for his grace. I was lucky enough um, growing up to, to be in a church that was strong on his grace. And even though it can go crazy sometimes, it was good for me to establish a foundation knowing that God distributed grace in abundance. Because I was able to know that even though there's going to be growing pains, and even though I messed up in areas, that he was never going to reject me, that he was never going to leave me. Likewise, in America, we have a lot of people that are dealing with church hurt, a lot of people. But Jesus loves you. He's always loved you. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's incredible to me. And it wasn't based on your performance that he died for you. But likewise, number 10, when we view being the hands and feet of Jesus as optional, and this is how we balance the pendulum. So while you were saved by grace, you were saved for good works. John, the 12th chapter, verse 14. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. You doing good works does not establish your salvation, but your salvation prompts you to do good works. When we think that being Christ's hands and feet on this earth is an option, we've slipped. Ephesians 2 if you jump down from the 8th verse down to the 10th verse, it says that we are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ to accomplish the works he prepared for us. For the follower of Christ, being 
or for the follower of Jesus, being his hands and feet are not optional. Going to close by going back to Colossians, the first chapter, verse 15. Typically, we like to go verse by verse here, but I, I felt the need to share this message. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That means he was active in creation, that he was there in the beginning. Will you stand with me this morning? Jesus is before all things, and in him all things are held together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth, in heaven, and making peace by the blood of his cross. You who were once alienated and hostile, what Paul's saying in Colossians, the first chapter, is he's saying it's all about Jesus. This whole thing is all about Jesus. It was created, the world was created by him and through him, and for all things, all things were created for him. As we look at our life and as we evaluate our life on this Sunday morning, what areas of your life are not completely for Jesus. I know there's areas in mine, but it's important that we look and we examine our lives and we say, where have I begun to set on the throne of my heart and dethrone Christ the King? And what areas am I not allowing him to control completely? Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.